You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. For those of us fortunate to be able to stay safely at home, it can be hard right now to feel connected to the world at large, to our own community, to our friends and family even. We meet each other in Zoom rooms and other online hangouts and sometimes that helps to scratch the itch a bit, just to hear the sound of our pals' voices and laughter but it's not quite the same. Sometimes there are random meetings with friends during daily dog walks when you have to remind yourself not to greet with a hug. On nice days, there are carefully distanced driveway cocktail hours where everyone brings their own glassware and communal snacking is a distant memory. Maybe the one thing that is keeping us all in touch with our shared emotional universe is the arts, whether we're consuming it as viewers or creating it as we take up new hobbies or maybe revive dormant ones. One of the things that has kept me from cabin fever is making my One World Same Boat radio show slash podcast. It isn't only the act of chatting with and listening to people around the world tell me how the world feels from where they sit, but bizarrely, it is the part of the show where I put in the sound effects of airports and air travel, the sound of beaches and laneways. I swear, by the time I've put the show together, I feel like I've really been somewhere, and that feels great. So today, as we travel around the various arts venues in Colombia, let's imagine it as a physical experience, and maybe, or just maybe, we can be on this journey together. So, as it is spring finally, I have brushed the winter cobwebs off my bicycle and I'm going to set off down the trail before popping up on Locust Street where, thanks to the fact that my bicycle is electric, I can whiz up that small but mighty hill and on up to Hitsville. Just going to lock my bike up. Hang on. I'm meeting Ragtag's cinema director, Barbie Banks, in the little Ragtag Theatre today. So, just going to walk through Uprise. Ooh, busy. And here she is. Hey, Barbie. Hi, how are you? Oh, it is a gorgeous day outside and I'm cycling around and um, it's fantastic in my imagination. So I have to say, I was a tad underwhelmed by last week's film offering and admittedly, I haven't watched it, but it just wasn't really my cup of tea and I just, you know, I felt like it wasn't a cinematic journey that I was emotionally (laughs) prepared to go on. (laughs) But this week, you are meeting all my cinematic needs. Heartwarming documentary plus hilarious paranormal comedy with gorgeous Irish accents. And that's before we even start on a Kobo Shorts screening and a ragtag extra credit screening of the 1991 movie Hook with Robin Williams and the lovely Dame Maggie Smith, Julia Roberts and Dustin Hoffman. So you have so much fantastic stuff going on this week. Where should we start? Well, I will say we were joking in our staff meeting that Slay the Dragon, while it was really good, was maybe not escapist enough for everybody. And so we kind of (laughs) went the other way with some stuff that's going to get you out of this pandemic headspace. And so (laughs) I'm really excited about Pahokee. I think it's a film that we've been 
watching for many years. The filmmakers, Yvette and Patrick, they came to True False in 2017 with a film called Rabbit Hunt, and they are a hoot. They are some of the most interesting filmmakers. And so I'm really excited to see their feature length film and about the Florida Everglades and this, you know, small high school. And it's a, just a great observational film and it, it, it has a very true false feel to it. So I'm excited to kind of bring back that uh, feeling too. So tell us a little bit about it. it. It follows four high school seniors. Yeah. And they're um, from a, you know, rather, lower income um, area, Florida, and it's just about their life and what's going on with them. And if you've seen any of these filmmakers' other films, which you'll get a chance to do that at Ragtag coming up, it sort of um, connects with those and what it's like to live in the, in Florida as a person of color and a lower income family. And I think, I, I'm not sure if I... I was watching the trailer for it and a piece of information flashed past and I thought, did I see that correctly? Did it say 40 children or students from this school have gone on to play for the NFL. Yes, that's correct. That's amazing. 4-0, yeah. 40. Right, exactly. And so it's um, you know, I feel like it's if you remember the film from True False called Undefeated, which was about a high school in West Memphis, um, it has a similar feel to that where it's you get to observe their lives and then see how they can escape some of the the things that have happened to them. And so I thought it was very heartwarming. And um, while it's a hard topic at times, it, it really does leave you hopeful in the end. And so highly recommend watching it. Yeah, it did really have such a, a tone of true false about it. You know, like lots yeah. of the documentaries. I find it really hard to watch a documentary without imagining me sitting in a room, you know, full of another 1100 people. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. I know we have created the like most doc savvy community in the world, I think. <laughs> <laughs> with true false being here <laughs> yeah we've all we've all become super critics of documentaries yes <laughs> <laughs> okay so the next one that i am um, i cannot wait to watch this on friday night it's called extraordinary um and it's being distributed by kino lorba which is one of your partners and we can go and download it from their website and give a little bit of money to ragtag at the same time tell us about extraordinary I was watching the trailer and the first like two seconds, there's this scene where this driving instructor from Ireland, she sees ghosts and she sees them as like, uh, you know, sheet wearing eye hole cut out ghosts. And I like laughed out loud two seconds into the trailer. So it is about Will Forte plays a um, kind of washed up rock star and he has, makes a deal with the devil and has to sacrifice a virgin to become famous again. And he has put a spell on a young woman in the town and the spell has caused her to levitate. And so the father of this daughter brings in this driving instructor who sees ghosts to try to help. And from what I understand, I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to watch it this weekend is that it's just a wild ride and it'll have you uh, laughing out loud the entire time. I saw it compared to a trilogy, which I'd never heard it called this before, but the Three Flavors Cornetto, which is uh, with Simon Pegg. So he did Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz and The World's End, all of which I love. They're all kind of like zombie comedy horror movies. And uh, right. generally, I, I do not watch horror movies. I cannot watch horror movies. They they terrify me too much and they never leave my brain but those three I some of my favorite movies of all time so I, I suspect that extraordinary might rocket into that same category 
Yes, I think so. I mean, it has Will Forte in it, who I think is a comedic genius. And it, yeah, while it's a little bit genre bending with having a horror aspect to it, I think it's more of a comedy than it is one of those keep you up at night horror films that we sometimes show at Ragtag. Variety wrote that it's a kind of tea cozy Ghostbusters that's consistently funny in a pleasingly off kilter way. And I love that idea that it's like a little tea cozy Ghostbusters. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And I think what's interesting is that it has like people from, it's just like a mixed cast. So it has Americans and Australians and Irish people. So like, I don't know, just even watching the trailer, the number of accents and it brought some humor to it in itself so I think it's going to be a wild ride one of our projectionists Steve he um, kind of got a bootleg copy of it a long time ago and has been kind of advocating for us to show it for a long time and so when we were talking about what to show this came up and we're like yes this is it our audiences are going to love it. There was a funny kind of commentary about it saying how, you know, when they remade Ghostbusters uh, a few years ago, and it was a a female cast that everybody panned it like there's no place for women in the world of ectoplasm and possession, to quote Roger Ebert. But but this is just like suddenly women are at the forefront of Ghostbusting. And that is really refreshing to see that (laughs) we get to own that category. um, I'm blanking on her name of who plays the... Maeve Higgins. The, the actual, yeah. I was like watching some interviews with her because I wasn't familiar with her work and she is a riot. So I'm really excited to see her um, in this feature length film and get to observe her a little bit more. So, and she's worked several times with this director. And so um, for me, it's a jump into a whole new group of comedians to get to learn about. Yeah. So that opens on Friday evening. I kind of, I almost want to download it early, but I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until I can download it from Ragtag and watch. Excellent. I appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah. And we hope with this one and Pahokee, you know, we do get a little kickback. And so the more people that purchase it, the, the more it helps out our organization. So we appreciate that. And so then the next one up, you have a Como Shorts Showcase. Yes. So Como Shorts is a Oregon town that's connected to Vidwest, which was, um, they've only had one festival, but it's a music video festival. And from what I understand, they were supposed to have another one this summer, but it's kind of been put on hold, obviously. And so they showcased this, it was that Talking Horse in January, and it's all local shorts. And so we will be showing them. There's 10 different films. And then afterwards, we have four of the directors joining us for a talk back. And um, I got to see it at Talking Horse and it's really great and it's amazing the talent that's coming out of Columbia and we feel like it's a great time to showcase that. Sometimes it's hard to show local stuff at Ragtag because you got to meet the needs of the distributors and so this kind of gives us an opportunity to do more of that with our virtual screening. So I think people are going to like it. It's a wide, wide variety of films. There's some very serious dramas that happen to comedies to documentaries. Yeah, I also saw it at Talking Horse in January and it was it was really an impressive group of filmmakers. I saw one of them as part of the visual arts showcase and it was like watching uh, a movie I was familiar with. I'm like, oh, I know this. I know these people. It was because I'd seen it in yeah. the Coma Short Showcase. <laughs> You're like, I know this stuff. Yeah, I mean, we have such a rich film education happening here in Columbia. And from Cat TV, which Pat Holt, who is a... Um, you know, older woman in town who makes these amazing films got trained there to, you know, really top-notch film schools at the university and colleges. And so it's really great to be able to connect these and 
Como Shorts, the organization attached to it, really does great advocacy for filmmakers in Colombia. And so when we show this, we'll be accepting donations and 50% will go back to these filmmakers so they can be, you know, making a little money while we're in this shutdown. Fabulous. And finally, before we close, you have Hook as the extra credit, yeah. um, which means that so you get some extra commentary with it. Yeah. Right? So uh, this is our series that we do with the university, The Connector, which is their goal is to help researchers take their research out into the community. So we pick a pop culture film and then The Connector picks researchers to come and talk after that film to put a little context around it. So this time we're doing Hook. You can find it on Netflix, um, also on Amazon for purchase, but Netflix if you're a subscriber. And so what you'll do is you will log on to our Twitch account and we'll have some pre-show information. You'll watch the film and then afterwards on the Twitch account, we'll have um, Jordan Booker. He's a professor of psychology and he focuses on identity of young children and how that affects your entire life when you're a kid. And, and then Brad Prager, who is a film studies professor in the School of Journalism. And so he'll be able to talk a little bit about the film. And it's always a really well-attended event. We had one with National Treasure with Nick Cage. And what was the best about it is that the commentary was not at all about the pandemic. Like it was just about the movie and the research that these professors are doing. And um, it was a great moment to escape. And so I feel like Hook is going to be the same way. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Barbie. I'm going to get back on my bike now and uh, cycle off to the Columbia Art League. So uh, I'll catch up with you next week. Yeah. Enjoy the rest of your day and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Barbie. It's always great to see Barbie. And I'm going to stop off at Uprise and just grab a quick chai latte. And then I get to freewheel back down Cherry Street, swerve a left at 9th Street. Wave to Paul at Top 10 Wines. Hey, Paul! He's putting out the sidewalk tables under the freshly greening trees. And then I'm pulling up in front of the Columbia Art League's big windows and striped awnings, where my pal Q2, otherwise known as Kelsey Hammond, is waiting to give me a tour of their new show. Good morning, Kelsey. Hello. So today we're going to talk about a new show that's about to open online called Visual Mixtape, the premise of which really reminds me of a conversation I had with Hannah Reeves at Sega Browdis Gallery during one of their master's exhibit shows. And she was saying that all artists have a heritage of influence through their teachers and their influences and their teachers' teachers' influences and so on. And so in her case, she said she could arrive back at someone like Annie Albers and see how a thread of artistic history is woven between Annie's work and Hannah's own output. So that reminded me a lot of the visual mixtape show. So tell us a little bit about it and what your inspiration was behind it. So I have been um, talking about this idea for a long time of your artistic legacy or the people who've influenced you for a long time. And it really resonated with me when I was in graduate school. And my mentor talked about that, that he worked with Mercedes Matter and Hans Hoffman was someone that she worked with. And then Hans Hoffman worked with Matisse. And so when he was talking, it sort of like hit me like that six degrees of seven of, or six degrees of Kevin Bacon, where I sort of went, <gasps> Oh, Matisse, right. Like that is someone who I have looked at my entire life because my father is an artist and he always had his prints around the house and cutouts were just such an easy thing to do as a kid of, of making, you know, different collages and using paper. And, and for me, I always felt comfortable using scissors and really uh, focusing on line, things like that. 
So all of a sudden I went, oh man, I'm related to Matisse? Cool. That's awesome. So um, what I ended up kind of thinking about in the long term is sort of like, well, what are the other people that you keep with you? What are the shows you've been to and seen along the way that sort of influence your artistic journey throughout? So it could be your direct lineage, or it could just be, you know, the shows that made an impact on you or things like that. So talking about your own work, then you're saying obviously through your father and and his work as an artist and going back to Matisse to someone you've always admired and noticed, who else or what shows that you've been to really stand out for you as part of your influence? Yeah, so um, I, I mean, I'm a photographer. And so but I, I look at painters probably more and and people who make sculptures probably more than I do other photographers with my own work. I mean, obviously I have a connection with Ansel Adams. He was a friend of our family, but really I look at um, painters like Jenny Saville, who's a, an amazing British painter. And she was one of my photography teachers when I went to school in, in Europe for a summer, but she taught me photography, but she's a painter. So I got to sort of like experience her painterly quality through photography, which was interesting. And just looking at Henry Moore as a sculptor who I love. And so his work isn't a one-to-one for me, but I love it. Botero is another sculptor who who uh, focuses on these large, really voluptuous figures. And they're sort of cartoonish looking, which I really think is funny and has a good sense of humor to it. So there's something about that too that I kind of feel like I want to channel somehow into my work. Or if it's not on purpose, then then it becomes that way. But Georgia O'Keeffe is a painter who I think really influences me in terms of landscape painting and thinking about my own body as landscape and imagery of sort of hillsides and um, and desert landscape and things and kind of relate that back to my own body. So that's kind of been who I've been looking at and, and looking at that influence. And I think that you may see that when you look at my work and you may not, it just depends on, on, you know, what you're looking for. Obviously it helps to have a little bit written next to a piece to kind of pick that out maybe, but I'm always interested to know what people are looking at, you know, when they're thinking about their own work and not to remake things, obviously, but just to kind of see the through line with what people have experienced. So you asked me specifically about shows and I can't think of like a specific show that's all one person, but anytime there's a show that includes someone's portrait or their own self-portrait, those things to me really settle in me and I feel like I carry that around and then it it comes out somehow. When I was in Edinburgh a couple of years ago I happened upon a Jenny Savile show and I hadn't Mm -hmm. seen her work before but it was a huge huge vast paintings of women's or her body I think they're all self-portraits they're so stunning yes they were so enveloping just to stand in front of these gigantic portraits of a female body it was so powerful and I hadn't thought about it before but now having seen your work and seen her work I I see that (laughs) lineage now uh, between the two of you yeah absolutely yeah she I mean she's an incredible painter like she's just an incredible person she's a force for sure and um, I didn't know that she was a painter when I met her I just thought she was the you know daughter of the person who ran the program but the way she talked, the way she just lived her life, how she and her partner, um, Paul McPhail, would, would just talk with each other about art, just even how she just lived, was such a huge influence. And I think that when I saw her paintings shortly thereafter, you know, through a catalog or at the time, she wasn't very well known. Um, so I sort of anytime something was out, I was like, oh, my gosh, yes. Like it just related everything back to the small conversations that we'd had, you know, so so Ansel Adams was a friend of your family's? 
Yes. Yep. Yep. He and my uh, grandfather and grandmother were very good friends and they worked with the Sierra club together and they um, worked to preserve a lot of the California wild spaces. So my grandparents purchased some land and donated it to the state of California to make it a state park. So they would climb mountains together and <laughs> they would go on, take photography equipment on burrows down into the Grand Canyon and things like that and make photographs and things. So did you meet him? Um, no, well, probably when I was really little, but I don't remember him at all. My mom remembers him quite well, but the funniest story is that he was uh, visiting my grandparents' house and my grandmother had some ladies who lunch over to, you know, to the house, Silicon Valley people. And uh, he was in the garden. He wanted to come over and just kind of wander around in the garden. So he was doing that and they could see him through the big vista of the backyard, the view through the windows. And someone said, um, oh, who's your gardener? I'm looking for a new person. And my grandmother said, oh, well, that's Ansel Adams. He's just come by to see the plants. <laughs> and so they were a little shocked that that was, you know, this famous photographer just hanging out in the garden. But yeah, they knew each other pretty well. And, and Ansel actually dedicated one of his portfolios to my grandfather. You come from incredible heritage. Your granny was really an amazing woman. Yeah, she was. She was incredible. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and they, you know, Ansel was good friends with her. They, they, they really loved to be outdoors and to, they just loved nature and were all taking care of wildlife and, and being conservative of land was really important. They wanted to make sure that, that people could still enjoy those big vistas that Ansel took photos of, you know, so that was something they all bonded over. So visual mixtape is opening vi uh, digitally at the Columbia Art League. When exactly? Yes. We are going to, fingers crossed, um, open on the 27th, which is Monday of April. And so that will include a space where you can physically, you know, press your computer buttons and sort of feel like you're in the space. You can stand in quotes, in front of a different artwork and move through the space. Um, and then we will have um, a companion piece on our website that shows the influences of the artists. So you can kind of go back and forth and see who they were influenced by. Have you had all the work submitted yet or is it still coming in? I believe yesterday was the deadline. So it should be all up on the 27th. So this weekend, you have to work on populating that whole online gallery site? Yes, yes, yeah. So we've worked with the artists a little bit on, we uh, did a tutorial on how to photograph your artwork, and they've been sending it in. It all looks really good and interesting, and I like to try to see if I can make the connection between what their influence is before you know I go and look to see what the images that they sent as their influence. And it's interesting to see people's takes. Sometimes it's very clear, and other times it's it's a little bit harder to initially see that. So I like working and, you know, trying to get my mind into that space where I can see the connections. It's been pretty interesting. Is it a jury show? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. We're going to have a jury look at it and we're going to award prizes as best we can. You know, right now we're funding is sort of, <laughs> you know, right. an issue, of course, but we're going to try because, you know, the Columbia Art League is here for the artists in the community and then the community in general, by providing a space where people can experience art. And we want to make sure that we are still supporting the artists in our community who, you know, this is normally they're able to sell more of their work and we're a big part of that for them. So we want to make sure we can keep that going if we can. And how many pieces will there be in the show? Do you know? I don't have an exact number yet. I think that we are around 50. So it'll be kind of a smaller show, but I think that'll be good for being a virtual, you know, gallery show versus 
in the space. I think in the space we take more um, usually, but having this be online, I think there might be a little fatigue of just kind of going through, you know, not being able to actually move through the space and kind of take breaks and stuff. Right. So. Yeah, it sounds perfect. Well, yeah. I look forward to seeing it on this coming Monday, April the 27th. And thank you so much, Kelsey. Uh, for Absolutely. for the chat about Ansel Adams and <laughs> Jenny <laughs> Absolutely, <Sowell>. I know. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'll see you soon. Bye, Kelsey. All right. Bye. From the Columbia Art League, let's head back up 9th Street, passing Booches. Mmm, burgers. Hiya. Pass Main Squeeze and... Here we are at one of 9th Street's two book havens, Skylark Bookshop. I always love pulling open the door and walking in here. It does feel like a kind of sanctuary. As the door closes behind you and with it the sounds of the city fade and the length of this gorgeous gallery of books unfurls before you. And sitting comfortably in a big armchair with stacks of books all around him is the man we've come to see, owner, author and festival organiser, Alex George. Hi, Alex. Hi, Diana. How are you today? Marvellous. Now, I know that this weekend would have been the fifth annual Unbound Book Festival. So my commiserations, first of all, as I know your heart shattered when you had to cancel the festival this year. But like so many people, you worked out how to pivot and create something new, which is housebound, unbound. So tell us all about that. So, yeah, I mean, we, we were heartbroken when we made the decision to cancel, but we, I always say it was a, it was a, an easy decision, but just a very, a very painful one. Um, and we immediately changed the conversation to talk about, well, how come, you know, we've done all of this work and all of this programming to bring all of these wonderful authors together. What can we still do to, so that we don't lose all of that, all of that good work. And so what we've decided to do is to bring some of those conversations online. Some of the uh, things we will actually be, we're hoping to, to bring back next year so that some of the authors will actually be coming back who were supposed to come this year will be coming next year. But um, some of them aren't, that, that's not going to be possible. And so we wanted to do something instead. And so we're doing um, a series of, I think they're, they're actually webinars and uh, we're going to be... Um, broadcasting those um we did one yesterday on thursday and the next one is going to be next thursday on april the 30th oh and in fact there's one in between on april the 25th on saturday at two o'clock so we're obviously it's not going to be quite the same but um everybody in this pandemic has been very creative in terms of what they've been doing you know we're not the only people trying to do this and so it's been interesting and fun to talk with other people find out what's worked and what hasn't worked and yeah so that's that's the plan and uh tomorrow uh, on saturday there will be uh two o'clock um it's going to be the panel that was going to be sort of co-hosted by the Kinder Institute at the University of Missouri, pursuing happiness in troubled times. And then next Thursday, we have another panel called You Had to Be There, which is about uh, historical fiction. Well, let's talk a little bit about the one that's going to happen this Saturday, first of all, with the Kinder Institute. So you have four political historians and theorists that are all going to be in our housebound, unbound Zoom room, I guess, um, mm -hmm. yeah. and, and talking about their books. Who have you got on that panel? So, yes, we have four people. Uh, three of them are local. Carly Conklin, who has moderated panels in the past for Unbound, 
who's associate professor at the MU Law School uh, and also uh, a professor of constitutional democracy and director of undergraduate studies at the Kinder Institute. She's going to be there, uh, Jenny Ukruta, uh, uh, who's actually coming to the Kinder Institute in uh, the fall of this year, will also be there. And then from Truman State University, we have uh, Professor Daniel Mandel. Uh, who is coming. And then uh, finally, we have Aurelian Krayutu, who is from Indiana University. And they've all written, as you said, these scholarly political books, uh, all of which have a different, um, they take different approaches to these things, but they all address the issue of the pursuit of happiness uh, in one way or another, whether from a sort of political point of view or some other kind of uh, context. It's going to be a very, very interesting conversation. You know, when we talk about the pursuit of happiness, you know, which, of course, everyone thinks about as being part of the, the opening words of the um, Declaration of Independence. And so it's a, it's a critical part of sort of how we think of ourselves as, as Americans. And so I think it's going to be really, really interesting panel particularly in these times i mean when we put this panel together you know we talked about troubled times we didn't really realize quite how troubled the times were going to be so i think that this is going to be a very very interesting discussion i think that the developments of the last few months are going to inform the conversation to a, to a large degree i certainly hope so so this panel would have been an existing panel had unbound gone on this isn't one that you've yes. just created for the housebound no, no, no. Um, much as I'd like to take the credit for, uh, for <laughs> seeing all of this, <laughs> this was uh, this was always going to happen, um, and we we have just taken it all online. But it, now it does see it does seem oddly prescient. <laughs> right. So, I mean, of all the panels that you had lined up already for this year's festival, how did you decide which ones you would try and create virtually? That's a really good question. I mean, it was a, a rather unscientific process that we went through. We we, we looked at, uh, a lot of it was to do with who was going to be able to come next year. Some of these things are more topical than others. Obviously, the one on Saturday would seem like, felt like a particularly topical one. And so we wanted to not wait a year to have it. So there was that. Um, and, and it was really just a question about author availability and uh, who was going to be able to, to participate. And the plan is that we're going to do these three. So we had one yesterday, one tomorrow, and then one next Thursday. And then we'll sort of see how, how they go from a sort of logistical, technical point of view. And then, you know, the plan will be to do a few more over the course of the summer and the fall and just to see see how it goes and you know hopefully we can it'll it'll allow us to keep having those conversations and keep people thinking about books and one of the benefits of course is that now it does you don't have to come to Colombia in order to participate people are going to be able to log in from any literally anywhere in the world and and uh, watch the conversation so that's exciting we're, we're we're looking forward to that and and I guess like all of Unbound it's all completely free so there's no ticket price to go and sign into the Zoom room no, there isn't. And it, all, all we do is uh, there, there's a, uh, and all of the links are up on the website. There are, there's a registration page that you have to go to. You just click on it. You just type in your name and then you can get into the room. So it's, um, it's, uh, it's pretty easy. So that's the one that this Saturday and then next Thursday in the evening. Tell us about that one. Yeah. So that one is called You Had to Be There. Uh, it's about historical fiction. Uh, it's at seven o'clock on Thursday, April the 30th. And we have two wonderful novelists, uh, 
Whitney Scherer, who wrote The Age of Light, and then Meg Waite Clayton, who wrote The Last Train to London, and me. And so the three of us will be talking about our respective books. Uh, and my book is, is called The Paris Hours. And what these books all have in common, they have several things in common. Uh, they're all set in Europe. Uh, Whitney's book and my book are both set in Paris. And Meg's book is set in Holland and Austria. They are all set at the beginning of the 20th century, um, going in order, uh, I guess, mine is first in 1927, and then Whitney's is in the 30s, and Meg's is at the also in the 30s. Uh, and the other thing they all have in common is that they all feature, to a greater or lesser degree, real historical figures, but they are all works of fiction. And so one of the interesting conversations that we're going to be having is what that means as a writer when you incorporate real people into stories that you made up. And as I said, there is, it varies because um, with Whitney's book and with Meg's book, the main characters in those books are real people. And so that was a different, whereas with my book, I have one or two people who sort of flit in and out of the narrative, but they are very much on the periphery of things. Uh, and so every writer that I've ever spoken to has a different approach to incorporating these kinds of characters into their work. Some um, are very, very assiduous in making sure they get every last detail correct. Others, that would be me among them, not so much. And, uh, you know, we obviously don't want to make any glaring errors, but I'm less less concerned about those sorts of things. So there's a great deal of uh, interesting conversation to be had there. I feel like uh, through Unbound Book Festival and conversations that you've had in the past, it has really opened my eyes to the idea of historical fiction and the work that is involved in creating a novel based on either real people, real events, real places, and how much huge amount of research that you all have to do to make sure that mm -hmm. you are getting it right. What buildings existed at the time? Every little detail right. you have to uh, be accurate about. You really do. And, and the one thing that you can be certain of is that if you get something wrong, somebody will write and tell you. <laughs> there are certain readers, there is nothing they like more than, uh, than going through these books and finding little things to correct. Um, so, but, but it's, yeah, it is important that you, um, as I say, you know, you've got to get the, the broad facts right. As I say, I am not so worried about getting little things wrong or even deliberately making them so. There's a great line by the wonderful writer E.L. Doctorow who said, um, historians will tell you what happened. Uh, novelists will tell you what it felt like. Uh, and I think that's a good mantra. It's certainly one that I've followed. I'm more interested in the feelings and being able to convey those sorts of things rather than getting every last sort of historical I dotted and T crossed. If we look at The Age of Light, is is about the photographer Lee Miller, who is a Vogue model. She's mm -hmm. a real person. But her son, Anthony Penrose, wrote a book about his mother in 1988. He's still alive. So when you're writing about somebody whose immediate descendants are still around, that seems like it would be extra tricky. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. And um, I think that it's a very... <laughs> <laughs> very brave of Whitney to do it. I mean, I think she's done a wonderful job. I have no idea what Penrose thinks about her novel, but, you know, I know that she worked very hard in terms of making sure that she did. You know, she, she set a very high bar for herself when it came to those sorts of things. I think that the further back you go, um, you have a little bit more license. I mean, probably Hilary Mantel 
isn't too bothered <laughs> um, that one of Thomas Cromwell's relatives is going right. to write her an email. Right. Hey, you got this wrong. But yeah, and I think I think that the stakes are certainly raised when when you're telling fictional stories with real people who are either still alive or whose children are still alive, for sure. Do you feel, as an author yourself, do you feel like you would have an obligation to run your book past the immediate descendant? That's an interesting question. I mean, my sense is that I would never be brave enough to write something quite so close. But I, I guess if I ever were in that position, then then I would take every um, opportunity I could to to clear it with the relevant people for two reasons, really. One, because you obviously would like to have their blessing and you don't want to offend anybody. Uh, But secondly, you know, for the purposes that we've been talking about, but in terms of verisimilitude, you want to get those facts right. And, you know, who better to be able to make that call than the people who are actually there and who knew them better. So, um, yeah, if I were ever in that position, then I would, if I could, and if all the stars aligned, I would try and get that kind of input from the relevant people. Well, Alex, we're out of time again. Thank you so much. Two events coming up for Housebound Unbound, one this Saturday at two o'clock and also one next Thursday, April the 30th at seven o'clock. We will catch up with you again next week when we will be talking exclusively about the brand new book, The Paris Hours by our very own Alex George. Thanks, Alex. I'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks, Diana. And we're off to the next stop. I'm back aboard my red electric bicycle once you've gone electric you just can't go back and I'm going to overshoot my next stop of Talking Horse Theatre and carry on up to the fabulous Beatbox restaurant on Fay Street for one of their delicious falafel sandwiches and a honeybee coffee I need to sit here and prepare myself a while I need to make sure my brain is fully nourished and fully stimulated before I get back to St James Street's Black Box Theatre wherein my improv gurus are already probably stretching and going through the vocal warm-ups for this week's improv lesson. Hello, Talking Horse Artistic Director Adam Bretsky and mistress of the stable boys, Kathleen Johnson. Hello, my lovelies. Hello, hello. So before we start today on my next lesson, I'm curious, who are your favourite improv actors? Kathleen. Oh my gosh. Um, I have a lot. So from my early days, I would say like Molly Shannon was kind of one of my early uh, big crushes when it came to female uh, improv comedians. Tina Fey is definitely incredible. Um, I think a lot of the women, SNL traditionally has like really strong women. And so I love all of them. So those are some of my favorite ladies to watch. I'm also a big fan of a lot of the people that came up on early, like John Stewart uh, stuff. A lot of them got their start in improv in different various ways, but like Ed Helms and all John Oliver, all of those greats. Adam, what about you? Yeah, my absolute favorite is uh, Robin Williams. Uh, and, and one of the reasons I loved him so much is just because you could tell that there was a love and an energy that he put into every character that he came up with on the spot. And my favorite thing about Robin Williams is that he really used his comedy and his improv skills to raise people around him. You know, he would develop a character, but he would always do it for the sake of building a better scene or making other people more comfortable being around him or being on set or being on stage. And I I think, truth be told, as we've been doing all these improv lessons, that is really kind of the 
foundation of good improv is it's mm-hmm. inviting people in, making them smile and making people feel welcome. With Robin Williams, I, I always wonder what he was like, if there was ever any downtime, even when you saw him on a chat show, he was always performing mm-hmm. and, you know, and I, and obviously, you know, he, he had a lot of sadness and depression in his life too. And mm-hmm. I, I wonder what it was like just to, you know, sit in a coffee shop with Robin Williams and, and talk about life because I never got that sense. You know, I do too, and it, not to take this segment in a, a different direction, but that's that's something that I, I struggle with a little bit myself of always feeling the need to be on, as it were, whenever you're mm-hmm. talking with somebody, whether it's uh, about the theater or about improv, or it's just going on a job interview or doing anything else. We all have kind of this mask that we put on to show a brave face, and we don't really reveal that vulnerability. Right. And yeah. I... And I I have some envy of actors because I think that you you can sometimes get through situations that are tricky for the rest of us because you are able to <laughs> tap into this other like who do I want to be today and and maybe overcome some insecurities or personality challenges that we all have and you can you can step out of that and be somebody else. You know, I won't speak for others, but I think I think you're right. Like I think there's definitely like a positive there and there's like a plus. It's a great tool to have in your toolbox. I think at least for me and some other actors and comedians that I know, the struggle then comes with like understanding yourself internally sometimes because you're like, how many different versions of me are there? Which one am I going to tap into? Or like, am I really seeing this clearly or am I taking this to, you know, a performative level internally and really being able to separate those two things then becomes the challenge. Right. As opposed to hiding your real self. Sometimes it's like, let's pull that real self back out again and feel that for a little bit. Right. I always wonder at the end of a production, not a comedy stable voice production, but when you're doing a piece of acting and you are a very strong character and there's been a very emotional scene, how difficult it is at the end of that to find yourself again. When you step off the stage, you've done the curtain call, you walk out and there's your family or you're getting in the car to go home how you allow that all to just drain away and leave you must be a challenge. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the big things that I was always taught and try to pass on, and I am sure Adam would agree with this, is like you you definitely never want to lose yourself to a character. I think people who say like, I became that person, like there's a part of that that seems appealing, but that's when it starts to get really dangerous. But I think you you do, the emotions feel real. Even if you always know you're still yourself performing like it you know process those and let those go yeah I think a lot of what you're describing is uh, what's known in acting as the Meisner technique it's it's being able to find a little bit of yourself in the character that you're portraying and then being able to translate those emotions that the character is going through into things that you have mentally thought about yourself and to be honest it, it varies from show to show and it varies actor to actor how they're able to come out of that um, sometimes it takes just a minute you're able to just snap your fingers and you're right back to your mood that you were before the show started sometimes it takes a little bit more time especially if it's a heavy show okay so here we go i'm ready improv lesson for today where are we going all right so one of the things we wanted to talk about today we talked a lot about listening and giving gifts and today we wanted to talk about how do you do all those things in the context of specific rules And so one of the games that we wanted to play, and we've got a little bit of time left to do it today, is uh, we're going to play a game called the ABCs, or the 92nd Alphabet, 
this one is pretty simple in that uh, Kathleen and I, we're going to do a scene here and we'll do a scene, but the, the rule is that we have to start a line with every consecutive letter of the alphabet. So for instance, if my first line starts with the letter A, then Kathleen's first line has to start with the letter B. Oh, okay, good. I was a little worried there. School's been out for like a month now. It took, so. I know, it took me a minute. I'm really a little nervous about this, but we'll do what we can. So uh, Diana, I wanted you to give us a scene, maybe something that you talked about in your last segment, and then give us a starting letter and we'll kick it off for you. Well, let's say we are off on a bicycle ride and we're going to stop at our favorite restaurant. Okay. And what's a letter that you'd like us to start with? Oh, let's start with D for Diana. Okay. Whew. Doesn't this bike riding just take it out of you? Every time I get on that bike, I swear, like, I am never going to do this again because it's just sucks to start but uh by the time I'm done I feel a lot better about myself finally finished with this whole bike ride god I know it took a lot longer than I thought it would I feel like the trails did we get lost somewhere along the way how about that map I don't even know what they were thinking trying to post that map with that trail system in all of those monochromatic colors, wh- why would you do that? Just toss it out. Just toss it out. Kind of reminded me of um, that one time when uh, we uh, do you remember when we were on that trip to New York and we tried to figure out the subway system. We were like, "What is this? How do people use this?" Oh, lots, lots of the time, I come up with that same memory. It was so great, man. It's just. This has been really nice. Like we've we've gone on a physical journey and an emotional journey. Now we uh, rest. Oh, that sounds good. But before I do that, I am going to make myself a little power smoothie. What did you want anything? Oop! I knew you were going to ask me about that. Quite right. I did. I really? did. I really stop. You know that I am trying to keep both of us healthy and in good form during these, you know, times when we're inside. We got to get our summer body ready. Today's not good for me. Understand, understand, understand. I do. I get it. But, uh, I mean, you you had that, you know, that donut for breakfast and... Uh, Very good. Give it to me. I'll, I'll try it. Well, okay. See, I could get around and you didn't even get frustrated this time when I started talking about your weight. I really appreciate that. Um, how about I mix in vegetables? Xerxes. The neighbor's cat <laughs> Xerxes just ran across. <laughs> All day long, that little cat just walks back and forth and back and forth. Cutie. Back and forth it went. We didn't even notice the extra letters. Can't believe it. Can't even quite think of it. Don't worry about it. End. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what happened to Y and Z? (laughs) Xerxes. You know what? I heard Xerxes. Yeah. (laughs) I heard Xerxes and I thought Z. That was so impressive. I feel like they are non-essential letters. And in this time, we're really focusing on just essential stuff. So throw them out. 
Yeah, I appreciated that X made it onto the essential list, given that it's in, you know, I have an X in my name. <laughs> yeah. So that was brilliant. I'm like, how you. are you going to, I could see it coming, like a train down the track. I'm like, oh my God, X is coming. Well, I feel like people always go with xylophone or x-ray because those are the most common uh, x words. <laughs> sometimes you just have to go, you know, Persian war heroes, so. <laughs> Can I pause for a minute? Sure. I'm so sorry. Sure. Lily's in the room. What, honey, I'm almost done. Well, what do you need? Well, the movie paused. Okay, can I come turn it on for you as soon as my meeting is done? How about you unpause the movie and then come back to your meeting? I can help you with that. I know you're frustrated by this answer. I can help you with that when I am done with my phone no! conversation. We are feeling big feelings here. You guys may need to finish it without me. Are you able to do that? We can do that. Thank you, Kathleen. And there you have it. Parenting must just be like improv all the time. I'm telling you, kids are the best improvisers. We can all learn a thing or two from them. Well, thank you so much for another fantastic day at the theater. I shall cycle off now down to the Missouri theater and sit and listen to some music with Monica. Adam, thank you so much. Kathleen, thank you so much. I will speak to you soon. Thanks for stopping by. Bye. Well, even though I didn't have to do too much today, I must admit, improv always leaves me feeling a little bit mentally spent. So it will be a relief to breeze back down 9th Street, sneak inside the Missouri Theatre for my last appointment today, a chance to sit in the theatre's beautiful auditorium, scene of so many fabulous music and film events. I'm just going to settle into my seat in row E and let the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Monica Palmer take us on a musical adventure. Where are we going this week, Monica? Well, I want to introduce you, well, not introduce you, because you're you're very familiar with this composer that we're going to talk about this week. Everyone is. It's Sergei Rachmaninoff. He was born in 1873, died in 1943. He was born in Russia, and he remained a Russian citizen in spite of fleeing Russia during the Bolshevik Revolution in late 1917 for refuge in Western Europe and America. He did eventually become an American citizen about 16 days before he died. I, I don't think that there was a connection between the two events, but that's, you know, it, it remains to be seen. Uh, <laughs> Rachmaninoff was a man of many talents. He could have easily made his name as a pianist, a conductor, or a composer. Uh, perhaps none of these would have even been options had his father not put the family in financial straits. So we should thank dad for uh, being a bad money manager uh, because he thwarted that original plan for Sergei to go to a prestigious military school. Instead of that path, he was allowed to follow his musical interests instead and was enrolled at the Moscow Conservatory. He was undoubtedly gifted musically, but he wasn't the best student. <laughs> we see this theme a lot, I think, with uh, great composers. They didn't like to do their exercises and their work. Uh, he was, however, really good at forgery. <laughs> so his mother never suspected that he was failing his classes because she was seeing the altered report cards that Sergei, little Sergei, would bring home. So <laughs> fortunately, uh, Sergei was taken under the wing of a teacher who inspired and challenged him enough to apply that considerable talent, so much so that Sergei graduated early. He was given the conservatory great gold medal and was praised by one of his heroes, Tchaikovsky. So pretty cool. Uh, Sergei's next triumph in his life should have been the debut of his first symphony. Unfortunately, luck was not with him this time. So the story goes 
23-year-old Sergei was worried about this premiere. He was afraid that acclaimed conductor Alexander Glazunov didn't quite understand the piece, and he hadn't given it the rehearsal time necessary because he was premiering a couple of other new works, too. Uh, Sergei had such a bad feeling about how things were going to go, he didn't even go into the auditorium at the premiere. Instead, he found a nice quiet spot in a stairwell where he could hear the music but make a quick exit if he needed to. And he needed to. Uh, Sergei's instincts were absolutely correct. The performance was a catastrophe, but probably not because of his music. Uh, rumor has it the great Glazunov, known for his fondness for vodka, may have had more than just a nip that night. So he was a little apathetic in his conducting, just kind of waved his baton like he didn't really care. And it did not go over well. The critics, however, didn't mention Glazunov. They just lambasted Rachmaninoff, and Sergei took it very much to heart. He put that symphony in a drawer, locked it away, and it would never be performed again in his lifetime. So this event, it was pretty, pretty traumatic, and uh, it triggered a depression and a composition drought for Rachmaninoff that lasted several years. Eventually, though, his family encouraged him to see Dr. Nikolai Dahl, who was an accomplished cellist, but also was a psychologist trained in hypnotherapy. Yeah, uh, it worked, too. Hypnosis worked. Uh, within a matter of months, Rachmaninoff had begun work on his most famous and most celebrated composition, his Piano Concerto Number no. 2. Modern audiences may actually recognize the second movement of this piece. So that's that's a perfect song for right now while we're all in so social isolation, right? <laughs> uh, so we can thank Rachmaninoff for that. So the second piano concerto, it gets a lot of love, but I personally love Rachmaninoff's symphonic dances. That is my favorite. And uh, you have to think about the time that this was composed. At age 67, Rachmaninoff was in failing health. He believed his composing career was over. Uh, I mean, between 1917 and 1940, he managed to create only five substantial works, including the popular keyboard masterpiece Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini. Fans of Somewhere in Time, the 1981 film with Jane Seymour and Christopher Reeve will no doubt recognize that gorgeous piece. Um, but pondering this creative drought, Rachmaninoff writes, Perhaps the insistent practice and eternal rush inseparable from life as a concert artist takes too much toll and strength. Uh, perhaps I feel that the kind of music I care to write is not acceptable today. And perhaps my true reason for adopting the life of an interpreter rather than a creator is none of these. For when I left Russia, I left behind the desire to compose. Losing my country, I lost myself mm. also. To the exile whose musical roots, traditions, and background have been annihilated, there remains no desire for self-expression. So pretty dark time for poor Sergei at this point. Fortunately for music lovers everywhere, that desire returned one last time. 
Rachmaninoff's swan song, Symphonic Dances, is a beautiful retrospective work that sums up Rachmaninoff's musical and personal philosophy. I, I like to think of it as kind of the musical equivalent to Shakespeare's Seven Ages of Man speech, you know, the All the World's a Stage. You can feel that same kind of reflective wisdom of someone looking <laughs> back at their own life and their own body of work with this beautiful mix of sentiment but detachment. It's not sappy. It's like, yeah, yeah, that was something that happened. That was awful. And that was beautiful. And it, it's that it's that feeling in this, uh, this piece. He even revisits one of his biggest failures in the most beautiful way. In the closing coda of the first movement, uh, the strings play a lovely melody. It's a theme from the composer's we first symphony. A bitter failure in his youth, but now he renders it in a major key with tranquility, through a radiant mist of bells. Yes, let's. And this is the very ending of the first movement of Rachmaninoff's Symphonic Dances. That is so beautiful. That's the way to re revisit an old memory. Like that's that's how we should all look at it, like our ex ex boyfriends and girlfriends. Like you know, it was a, a horrible relationship, but let's turn it into a magical thing with bells and harp. <laughs> <laughs> now, were the symphonic dances meant to be danced too? Yes, he was actually composing them with a friend of his. Uh, they were going to turn it into a ballet, but then his friend passed away a year before it was actually completed and, and performed. So it wasn't um, choreographed until the 80s, so much well after Rachmaninoff's death. So he never got to see it staged as a ballet, but it was originally composed to be danced to. So are there any events coming up, Monica, for the Missouri Symphony Orchestra that we can get involved with online? Yes, we've got some things uh, brewing. We're going to make some announcements on May 1st about some exciting things. Um, and also May 1st, Trent and I are going to be joining our friends over at Top 10 Wines. They've been doing these lovely happy hours online. And we're going to join them for one talking about uh, music that was inspired and maybe infused uh, with alcohol. So uh, <laughs> we're also going to give a nice little pairing for uh, some different wines and musical pieces so that you can uh, shop at Top 10 Wines and, uh, and, and then have a nice little listening party at home. I'm writing it in my diary now. Perfect. I actually hear it. I hear you writing. <laughs> Old school. <laughs> Monica, thank you so much once again for being part of this week's Speaking of the Arts. And uh, I look forward to seeing who we're going to explore again next week. Thank you. 
and that is it for today's show. I'm off home now. Thank you so much for staying at home and for listening. I'll be back next week with more ideas and happenings that can help us stay artfully nourished until we're able to meet again. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. <laughs> <laughs>